The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special episode is my normal, regular co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. And also Richard Latour, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, who is making his, we think, third, fourth appearance, fourth appearance (laughs) on the Proceedings Podcast. Hello, Richard. Thanks, Ward. Glad to be back. So we have a special episode, as I've already teased out here, of the Proceedings Podcast, another history-facing episode, which we always enjoy and always the audience uh, seems to enjoy as well. So in the current issue of the magazine, we have a a feature called The Tale of Eleven. Talk to us about that, Richard. Uh, Bear Tillman is the author of Tale of Eleven, and he's one of our guests today. It's about Carrier Air Group 11, which fought during the Pacific War. Uh, flying off a of Guadalcanal in the USS Hornet. Also with us is Virgil Bloomquist, who was a veteran of the air group. He was a member of Torpedo Squadron 11. He flew in a TBM Avenger. And our third guest is George Ritalis, who is director of a documentary about the air group. Uh, it's titled 11 the Movie. And right now that uh, movie that documentary is uh, a member benefit for Naval Institute members. So if you go onto the uh, Naval Institute website and log in, you can under uh, your go to your membership your page. membership page. Yeah. You can actually click on that documentary and, and watch it. And it's a an exclusive member only benefit right now uh, that uh, George has very nicely allowed us uh, to offer to our uh, Naval Institute members. And it's like we did with the uh, the Sea Wolves a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. Same sort of member benefit here, and uh, uh, very excited about providing this for our members. So, uh, Barrett, uh, why don't we talk to you first? Uh, tell us a little bit about how uh, you came to write this feature. Well, it goes back to the 1970s when uh, one of my now deceased uh, colleagues, Richard M. Hill, who was a former naval aviator in the late 40s, had begun compiling information about Fighting Squadron 11, the F-11, the, uh, the sundowners of honored memory which was axed by a soulless naval bureaucracy. Um, Dick was unable to continue with the project, so he asked if I would like to pick it up, and uh, I did. And that led to uh, just a wonderful succession of contacts with uh, the World War II uh, iteration of the VF-11, including uh, and especially uh, the late Rear Admiral Bill Leonard, who... uh, had flown from New Yorktown at Coral Sea and Midway, recycled, went out to uh, Guadalcanal with the Sundowners in 43. And through him, I was able to uh, uh, establish contact with so many others, including the the two uh, most successful fighter pilots in the squadron, uh, Charlie Stimson and Jim Swope, uh, the uh, the last wartime CO, uh, Red Admiral 
Gene Fairfax, and that led to a uh, uh, small book in uh, the early 90s just detailing the World War II squadron. But then my uh, British editor and publisher, Tony Holmes, with Osprey in, in the U.K., suggested that I write a first-to-last uh, history of the Sundowners in the publisher's Elite History series, and I did. That came out several years ago, and it covered the whole period from 1942 until the squadron stood down in uh, 1995. So I was well prepared to uh, tackle the uh, Air Group 11 history when Richard suggested that uh, I might want to do that. So we have a nice sidebar in the article called Verge's War, which Barrett also wrote. And as we've uh, introduced, we actually have Verge uh, on the line with us. So Verge, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and uh, how you joined the Navy at a very young age and how you wound up being a Naviator. As, as so many of us uh, young young men wanted to do uh, uh, join up with the service in some way. And... Uh, I talked to my dad about that, and that things were getting uh, uh, down to the nitty-gritty about going to war. So uh, my dad asked me if I had any uh, choices to make on that subject, and I told him I didn't. And he said, I might tell you about uh, one thing that he experienced. He was in World War, World war One, and uh, he... He fought in France, and the Germans used uh, at the time used a mustard gas in France. And my dad uh, uh, had to breathe some of that at times, and so uh, he got ulcers because of it. And when he got out of the out of the army, he was uh, sick, like. Uh, 50% of the time, and when I grew up, I knew my dad had been in Fitzsimmons General Hospital half the time because of the ulcer problem, so uh, he said, told me, he said, the one thing I have that uh, might be of interest to you is uh, the fact that we dug uh, <clears throat> foxholes every night and that we would sleep in those foxholes and he said sometimes it would uh, rain and uh, we would try to sleep in uh, wet foxholes he said I don't know what how you feel about that what your thoughts are but he says uh, if, if you, you want to dry bed uh, don't take the army don't let him grab you. <laughs> well, that rang a bell. So, uh, so I, that's why I went in the Navy. And I wanted to fly, but I didn't have the education. I didn't, uh, I didn't finish high school. wasn't able to. And <clears throat> so I went in at 17, and a month later I was 18 and went, through, went to boot camp. And luckily, stroke of luck indeed, in boot camp, our section leader asked us if, uh, in case uh, we were going to uh, 
go to school or have a chance to go to school, would we be interested? And then all of us, uh, a bunch of us raised our hand up and said, oh, yes. And I wanted to go to school, and I knew I couldn't be a pilot because I had, didn't finish high school. So I thought, uh, what about a crewman? And it turned out that I was able to go to uh, to uh, school as a crewman, and little did I know that that it would happen that easy. But that's why I wound up in the in the torpedo Air Group Eleven, and uh, as a crewman, and it was the best move I ever made in my life. So you were a uh, you were a crewman in the TBM um, Avenger. Yes. Uh, so there were yes. three guys in in that airplane. Hey Barrett, remind me that's the right. same airplane that uh, that George H. W. Bush flew in World War II as well, right? That's yes, right. he was on the uh, light carrier San Jacinto. Okay. Um, so where were you sitting relative to the pilot, and where was the third guy, Verge? Okay, there was the pilot in the cockpit and the turret gunner in the uh, turret and the uh, radar slash operator uh, gunner was in the tail of the plane that was the back end and uh, that's where I, where I was that was my job and I took care of the radar and the 30 caliber machine gun in the tail and so were you facing forward or aft uh, facing forward uh, usually, but if I was on my gun, I was facing aft. Okay, so your seat could spin around? Is that how that worked? Well, I would just get off the bench seat and uh, take a step and a half, and I'd uh, have my gun. So it was it was handy. Verge, Barrett's article about you is in part based on a diary that you kept during your time in the Pacific. Wasn't it against the rules to keep a diary during the war? It was just something to do to start with. I had no intention of writing a diary or keeping track of daily activities. But once I started, I thought about telling about things that happened to me that were so surprising. I had no idea of the things that would happen. And then when I started flying as a crewman after getting out of school, I thought this is the best job I could have in the Navy without an education. And I thought this is just great. And I enjoyed every hour of flying and every hour of of my association with pilots, and I, I think I had the, we had the best pilot in in the whole world, Joe Sobian, and uh, he was he was just the greatest. And uh, one of the biggest things that makes him so important, he brought us back. What were some of the most uh, hair raising? Uh- you know, sorties that you had. Uh, I, looking at your article here, it uh, it says that you joined the air group in late 1944 and then made the deployment, its second combat deployment uh, in 1945. So some of the highlights were operations against Okinawa, 
against Formosa, now known as Taiwan. A lot of combat operations there. Um, what were some of the, the, the highlights for you or some of the most vivid memories uh, that you look back on? I would say the one that I remember the most that was so important was on November the 13th. We had four strikes on Manila Bay, and uh, I wrote down a few Jap fighters which got in the air were shot down. AAA was extremely heavy. Seven of us went in on the targets in dives. Five of us got through. Our skipper and Oberg pilot were shot down. Mm-hmm. I saw Herbert Oberg go down. The two crews lost were Lieutenant Commander Dennison, Squadron Commander Pilot, Falk, Radioman, Steed, Gunner. Ensign Oberg, Pilot, Burgess, Radioman, and Hamaker, Gunner. Much damage done to Japs. This is my writing of Mm -hmm. what happened that day. We got a hit on a CA. Looking back at the time Oberg's plane was hit, I was on my gun waiting for a pullout. Oberg's plane went into a flat spin, and it just barely missed hitting a Jap transport when it hit the water. Dennison was leading our seven-plane dive, and he and his crew were also shot down, but he ditched in Manila Bay. Two days later, an F-6F fighter pilot was shot down over Manila and bailed out of his plane. When he landed, he thought he would be taken prisoner by the group that found him. turned out to be Aussies. The pilot had a broken leg, so the Aussies put him on a makeshift stretcher. They stopped walking down the trail, and, uh, and the Aussies were jabbering about something and pointing at a clearing. They helped the pilot stand on one leg and pointed to three men who had been hung from three trees. The pilot pointed to his dog tags and also the clearing. In a short time, the leader knew what the pilot meant. The leader sent two men to the clearing and told them to return the dog tags from the three men who were killed. The two men returned with with the tags and motioned with the tongues of all three, motioned that the tongues of all three had been cut out. Also, some of their fingernails had been pulled out. About eight days later, a pilot was picked up by the U.S. sub and in a day or two was returned to the Hornet. He turned the tag, dog tags over to the skip ship commander, and they turned out to belong to Commander Dennison Pilot, Falk Radioman, and Steed Gunner. Mm. That was the entry on November the 13th. One of the things that jumped out at me as I read this was the, the age of the even the squadron commander. So uh, uh, Barrett, on the page 35, you wrote that um, uh, Lieutenant Commander Hoyt Mann was the junior CEO in the in the air wing, and he was a Naval Academy class in 1936. And so Ward and I were talking about this uh, as we were getting ready for today. That you know, six years into our careers, we were you know JOs. We were young lieutenants with very little responsibility in the Navy. Uh, and here you've got a uh, you know, squadron commander 
leading a squadron, you know, off to war six years into his, uh, into his commission to, uh, time in 1942. So just the, the, uh, juniority, relative juniority is, is pretty remarkable to, of, of this entire, you know, crew of aviators as they're, you know, headed off to war. That, that situation was reflected in the Navy generally and probably the most complete database for those who are interested in, uh, comparing ages is from the, uh, submarine force, because I, I think at the start of the war, a typical fleet boat commander was uh, maybe 40 years old, and at war's end, uh, there were a couple of, no pun intended, water walkers, I think out of the class of 37 or 38. So those uh, skippers were like 27, 28 years old, commanding a, a significant naval combatant. And it, it just reinforces how essential the uh, the leadership was, obviously not just limited to the Navy, but those who had pre-war experience were invaluable. I've, I've said that basically they were national assets. And uh, today, in comparison, as, as you just noted, Ward, uh, I would imagine it's pretty rare to find a... Uh, a fleet aviator in a deploying squadron who's under 25. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. If you yeah. graduate from the Naval Academy at age 21, 22, and it takes a couple of years Two to get through flight school and then the, the rag, rag. That's almost another year. Yeah. yeah so you're, you're right. Barrett. Yeah, 25, 25, 26 when you're arriving at the, yeah. at the squadron. And the COs are, you know, early forties, you know? Um, so late, maybe late thirties, a huge, yeah. huge contrast. Yeah. And the other thing, listening to Verd talk, Barrett, when you think of, Op tempo today, you know, here it is, November of 1942. Um, that's less than a year after Pearl Harbor, and the sortie uh, rates that they're flying, and the number of you know kinetic sorties where they're seeing enemy and they're having losses. Um, it's just inconceivable to the modern day aviator. I think the best example I can give, and I, I compiled this data from a, a previous book called On Wave and Wing, which was a centennial. Uh, tribute to the aircraft carrier. The United States Navy at the end of World War II had 99 aircraft carriers in commission. And of course, that included the small CBEs, escort carriers. But today, Congress mandates, I think, 11 deployable nuclear carriers. And we're now down to nine, I believe, because Ford is uh, still a work in progress. And nobody seems to know when uh, she will will be uh, fully capable. So just an immense uh, comparison, which is pretty much what you would expect after the passage of three quarters of a century. And the number of airplanes, you know, available in the type model series and how we were iterating through the war, developing new platforms all the time and new weapons capability, um, you know, that's unrivaled, really, if you consider where we were at Pearl Harbor and then where we wound up, uh, you know, at, at VJ, VE Day, um, you know, just amazing uh, how, how the innovation was happening, um, you know, during during that time frame. And as an aviator, you know, I'm just uh, marveling at, uh, at what, what, what these guys did like Verge. Um, so, uh, Verge, just to go backwards a little bit, where were you on Pearl Harbor? And what do you remember um, about hearing about that? And what did you think immediately was going to happen? Well... Uh, I thought uh, it would uh, 
it would uh, make up my mind of what I would do. I, <clears throat> I had an idea that I'd be going in the service. I wasn't sure uh, wh- which branch, but I had an idea. So, what, where were and, where uh, in the country uh, were you? Where, where where were you in the country when when that? So you're 17 years old. Uh, where are you? I was in uh, Denver, Colorado. I was working in a service station, and uh, <clears throat> I'd uh, go up to the. Uh, there was a bar that was close by, and I'd go up there every day for lunch. And of course, people would play the patriotic songs, and that would make me think about the service, about when I would go and where I would go. And I would just. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing, so I took the I took the word of my dad. Uh, that meant quite a bit, and that's why I went I enlisted in the Navy, just hoping, hoping I would get something I liked, and it turned out I did. Excuse me, this this is Barrett. If I may interject here, uh, it's sort of become conventional wisdom that in 1941, very few Americans had ever heard of Pearl Harbor. I'd be interested in uh, Verg's comment on that and what his fellow teenagers knew at that time. We didn't know much. We could uh, read about it, the stories about Pearl Harbor, and uh, we knew that it was a war, and we couldn't imagine what a war was like. Virgin, have you heard of Pearl Harbor before the the war began? No, no. <laughs> and did you view no, the I Japanese haven't. as a you know existential threat? Really, there in Denver was was were were the drums of war beating as far as you were concerned before Pearl Harbor? Yes, yes, okay. yes. They were because I knew that uh, I would be going somewhere in the military. Okay, and uh, I just didn't know where. But my dad helped me on that. So then again, for perspective, just as we're sitting here, as you know, in, in 2019, 11 months after Verge is working at a gas station in Denver, Colorado, he's in the heat of battle as a radio man gunner aboard a TBM. So that's pretty right. insane, mm. you know. Um, and, and we've already, and we said this last month when we were talking about Midway, but people forget how soon Midway happened after Pearl Harbor. And now this is really not that much later where we're in this next conflict and leading up to Leyte Gulf. Um, so just, uh, amazing, amazing. When we say greatest generation, um, you know, it doesn't even come close to what, uh, what folks like Verge did. Um, so, Virg, did you remember being scared, or what? What, what was your emotion? Because again, you're a high school kid, plucky Midwesterner, um, and and here you are thrust into this this challenge with no. I mean, these days people have seen the movies and they've got access and internet, so they've seen horrors that you had not seen in in person. Like you said, you saw your skipper uh, go down during a carrier qualification uh, evolution, then you saw other guys shot down. What what do you remember emotionally about about that? Did that freak you out, or were you just sort of just something you guys accepted and you just pressed on? What 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 comes to mind when you think about those sorts of challenges? To begin with, uh, uh, we knew we were in in uh, the war, even though we hadn't joined up yet. We we knew that we would be there in a short time. When we were uh, had a 
question of uh, fear. That never happened. I was 18 in school, and <clears throat> when I got in uh, Air Group 11, I was uh, a year later, 19, so I was pretty young, and 19-year-olds don't have any fear. And that, that helped me, really, because I could think about the war, about being shot at without any fear, because it just didn't happen. We just uh, knew we would make it all right. I always knew that I would uh, celebrate the end of the war. That was just uh, granted for some reason. So uh, there was just, for 18, 19-year-olds, <clears throat> those kids don't have any fear. George, uh, you have a personal connection to the air group. Can can you tell us how you became involved in your film about about air group 11? So um, uh, my grandfather was in the torpedo squadron 11 and we were very close growing up and uh, he wouldn't share much about the Navy. He would only sing a couple of sailor songs. <laughs> and um, after he passed away, since I was named after him, uh, my family gave me a bunch of his items and it was a old camera with some pictures from the war. And then he had kept a diary. And reading the diary just kind of got fascinated by all the friendships he had. And I just kind of wanted to learn more about who his friends were. And some time went by. And then all of a sudden, just a bunch of happenstance stuff occurred where um, I started connecting with family members of the air group. And uh, one of them was uh, Tim and Katie Hampton. And Katie's great uncle was friends with my grandpa, and he ended up being shot down. And so um, that led to meeting my first Air Group 11 veteran in person, who was a sundowner, a plane captain. His name was Kermit, and his nickname is Tim, last name Enander. And we hung out one night, and the first thing he said to me was, I can't believe I'm talking to the grandson of Rattleass. <laughs> nice call, sir. I never, I was, my last name is Rattellis, but they just, you know, that name just stuck. So we started chatting and then I, I, I interviewed him. And then my next question was, do you know any other veterans from this air group? And he, he was so thrilled. He's like, I happen to be the reunion ringleader. <laughs> So I, <laughs> I uh, so I went over to his place. He lived nearby me in the Bay Area, and we went through his Rolodex, and we just started putting together a roster through connections and lined it up, and then with uh, Tim and Katie Hampton, and then we did a Kickstarter and we put it out there. And one of the Kickstarter uh, responses was uh, literally through the Kickstarter messaging app. It was. Uh, one of the Sundowner pilots, who at the time was 94, Bob Flath. And he said, hello, my name is Bob Flath. I flew the Wildcat and Hellcat. I'd be curious to see this documentary, pretty much. <laughs> I was like, I want you to be in it. <laughs> so um, it just kind of grew, and we ended up with 11 veterans from Air Group 11. And uh, Verge ended up being the 11th veteran we found. Wow. So... We traveled up to Leavenworth, Washington, 
interviewed him, and then literally we partied that night because that was yeah. that was a wrap. Verge, where where did we go at the Onion Dome in Leavenworth, Washington? Yes, to Gustav's, but uh, better known by you as the Onion Dome. We had a great beer, and so then after that, I went and I hustled and got the movie all edited. But uh, right after the movie was released, it was nice because the word of mouth kept going, and I ended up discovering four more Air Group 11 veterans. So I did little subsequent interviews with them as well, and uh, just coming back full circle, I just can't. You know, I just think about all those times I hung out with my grandpa, George, and I called him Papu because we're Greek. And uh, I just think about how special it is to come back. And then I was reading this article that, you know, Barrett wrote, and I just know, you know, he'd be smiling. And I just want to thank Barrett for being a huge resource because not knowing much about anything, I didn't know where to start for like a framework. And that Sundowner book that he wrote was literally the blueprint to help me guide of how to edit and put together the structure of the whole air group. So thank you, Parrot. And I sure want to express my admiration, for, not only for your ability, but your dedication, George. It's just tremendous. Thank you. George, at your website, www.11themovie.com, I found this great little short film about Verge revisiting oh. an Avenger for the first time. And this is, this is just excellent, very emotional. Can you can you you and Verge tell me about that? On Facebook, I put out a, you know um, some information about the movie, and someone had reached out to me and said, "Hey, you know, we, we're going to have a big TBM adventure gathering over here in Peru, Illinois, and um, would you consider coming out?" And I was like, "Yeah, can I bring a veteran? Can can he go up on one of those aircraft?" And they were just like thrilled. Oh. So I said, "Verge, we're going to work." <laughs> let's go and uh we headed out there and and the the whole community out there at this gathering it's it's awesome if you guys can ever go it's the tbm avenger gathering and it's a great group of folks and um they let us run around and put virgin there and i got to interview him in the back yeah. and uh you know a lot of stories have been recorded about uh pilots but i thought it'd be kind of special to hear about What's it like for one of the guys that are in the back there, that, you know, the unseen heroes? That's right. The guys <laughs> in the back there are the unseen heroes. <laughs> yeah. So let's hear, let's hear uh, it's called Radio Man Flyer. So if you search for it on YouTube, you can find it. And uh, I can't tell you how fantastic it was when that flight went up. I literally, um, the crew at, the, at that air show, you know, they, they put Verge... Verge was going to go inside the back, and at the last second, he said, you know what, I want a better view, because they're going to let me go up at the jump seat in the top. So he went up there, and um, they uh, one of them asked me if I'd like to go in, in the ball turret, and I said, well, and it's weird, because I was thinking, actually, you know what, my grandpa was a plane captain. I'll stay on the ground. <laughs> but we were, with Tim and, <laughs> we were with Tim and Katie Hampton, mm -hmm. and Katie's great uncle, Claude Haley, who was shot down in a TBM, she's raised her hand and we all looked and we're like, whoa. So she went in that ball turret ride with Virgin there and she wow. still has the gold star that she wears of her great uncle. Hey, Virg, how'd you think about that flight? It was great, just great. <clears throat> I 
I didn't I didn't want the days to end. Hmm. It was, hmm. Everything we did was so big, so such a reminder of of what us guys did in the squadron. And uh, uh, oh, I'm so glad I was able to be there. Yeah, that's an amazing effort. Good work there, George. Yeah. So, uh, Barrett, uh, you always do a great job with stories within stories. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Rabbit Moranville. So my first question mm-hmm. is, I flew with a guy named Rabbit Moranville. Is he is is this Rabbit Moranville his great-grandfather? Or do, do we know the lineage of uh, the Moranville family? Uh, you know, uh, Blake Moranville, he was Horace Blake Moranville, was um, a longtime friend of mine. I saw a lot of uh, Blake and Mary because we both lived in Oregon. And uh, Blake was, I'm pretty sure, the, the junior officer in the squadron when he joined it after the, uh, the squadron uh, recycled following the Guadalcanal tour. And uh, as the, the bull ensign, Blake was uh, given the responsibility of caring for the squadron mascot, uh, Bull Terrier, or Boston Terrier called Gunner, uh, partly because uh, Blake's father back in Nebraska was uh, a veterinarian. Uh, Blake's surname is spelled M-O-R-A-N-V-I-L-L-E, but before the war, in other words, between the world wars, there was a popular professional baseball player named uh, Moranville, M-A-R-A-N, and his nickname, for reasons I don't know, was Rabbit. I guess he was a fast base runner. So because of the similarity, even though they're not identical in their names, uh, Blake became Rabbit and was known by that name for his entire Navy career. Eventually, he retired as a commander. Uh, I'm in touch with his son, Mark, who was a uh, uh, naval officer, but Mark has never mentioned anyone else in the family uh, being uh, in the Navy. So I, I doubt if there's a, a direct connection. Yeah, so there's an Admiral Moranville um, who was Sixth Fleet um, when I was. Yeah, so that, in that was that VF-30. was Blake's younger brother. Okay, and and then there his son who also had the call sign Rabbit. Um, I flew with him when he was at VF-43, when I was the editor of Approach uh, back in the late 80s, early oh, 90s. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just wondering if there's... But but there's a really cool picture on page 40 of Rabbit asleep in a ready room chair uh, with Gunner in his arms. It's really sweet, a uh, sweet shot, and, and Boston Terriers are a very cool breed. Um, so, so great stuff. Yeah, I wanted to ask for a second, uh, going back to that uh, TBM reunion a couple of years ago, how many up aircraft were at the reunion? How many... Uh, operational TBMs were there on that uh, for that event. I believe there was about a dozen, but there was some weather concerns. It, we, his flight almost didn't get to go up; it was raining, and um, we were kind of holding our breath, waiting to get the okay. And uh, right at the end of the uh, at the end of the flight, at the end of the night, end of the day, evening, the sky broke open, and they gave us the go ahead and. Um, they just sent up the one TBM with Virgin in it. Mm. And um, the real special thing is is that same day um, when they came back and Virgin landed, they went back up one more time to do a um, missing man formation for our friend uh, Jack 
Cox, who was a VB-11 pilot with Air Group 11, and he had just passed away. Mm-hmm. And he's also featured in the documentary. And um, it was just just a totally emotional, bittersweet, wonderful day. Yeah, I, I can just imagine and, that's uh, incredible stuff. Yeah. So, Barrett, the other thing that you do very well is uh, the lineage of squadrons. So, you know, VT-11 became... I, I'm fast forwarding the timeline here, but VF 111, because VF 11 is not the Sundowners, that's the Red Rippers, as we know now, VFA 11. Um, so how, how, did, how did that happen? How, how does how does how did that get mangled like that? Well, after the war, uh, we're talking 46, 47. The Navy changed the system for designating uh, squadrons, and. It, it had to do with air group realignments. Obviously, at the in 1945, I'm going to guess we had uh, 80 or 90 carrier air groups. Then, very soon thereafter, we had I'm going to say maybe 12 or 15. And the designation system changed so that, for instance, VF-11, the Sundowners became VF-11A or Able. And VF-112 became, uh, or uh, uh, VF-11 Baker, so on and so on. And that system lasted, I'm going to say, for just a couple of years. And then there was a a more conventional uh, realignment, which continues today. But in the meantime, it's a pet peeve with me and so many naval purists how the United States Navy is institutionally incapable of maintaining a a logical uh, continuum of aircraft uh, unit designations because there have been at least, let me think, there have been at least three VF-2s dating from the 1930s, and today's VFA-2 is populated with sailors and JOs who assume or have been erroneously told that they're descended from the, the famous Flying Chiefs squadron mm-hmm. of uh, the late 30s and early World War II when they're not. So VF-11, went the Sundowners, went through a, uh, a, an, a flail in 1956 that still is unexplained as far as I know because VF-11 changed the designations with Attack Squadron 56, VA-56. And I used to know one of the uh, pilots in the squadron at that time, where Admiral Skip Furlong, and I asked, what was that about? He says, we don't, we didn't know then, we don't know now. One of the theories that has been advanced is that uh, a decade after the end of the war, the Sundowner logo showing the setting Japanese sun was considered uh, politically sensitive, and the assumption has been presented that uh, the U.S. government was able to tell Tokyo not to worry that squadron doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I, think that's I have right. no idea no. if that's true. No. I but think it, that it, is true. Yes. Sort of makes sense. Yeah, it does make no. sense. Well, and I'm reminded, Barrett, of uh, how the current uh, VFA-103 got the Jolly Rogers, right? So if I'm not mistaken, um, Snort Snodgrass was fighter wing at that time when we were decommissioning Tomcat squadrons. He had been CEO of VF-103, so he didn't want that squadron to go away, but he didn't like their logo. Sluggers. 
yeah, the sluggers, right? He didn't want he didn't he liked the Jolly Roger better than he liked the sluggers, so he just sort of arbitrarily <laughs> made it the VF one oh three Jolly Rogers, which had been VF eighty four uh to that point. And I know that their their heritage in the World War Two are they were what? Help me out here. V V T three, wasn't that the Jolly Rogers? VF seven. Yeah, so you know, again, it's it, sometimes it has there's a method to the madness because they deliberately are changing the the the, the process, 17. and then other times it's it's completely arbitrary. Um, and again, for a historian yeah. like Barrett, that drives him crazy. And obviously, Barrett's the guy who shows up and tells all the JOs in his squadron there is no Santa Claus, and that their <laughs> squadron heritage that they've been instilled with <laughs> is completely bogus. <laughs> so, God love me for that, Barrett. <laughs> uh, Verge, there was one uh, part of the uh, of George's documentary that I thought was uh, especially emotional and scary. It's uh, when you're talking about riding out Halsey's typhoon, and you mm-hmm. go, I believe you go on deck and see a destroyer next to your carrier. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Can, yeah. can, can so you can you it, explain what what went what happened? It, uh, we were uh, we heard on the squawk box that there's that uh, a tin can on the port side was having trouble, and so uh, Blank and Bill and I decided to go out on the catwalk and and on the port side and see what the trouble was. So we got out there, and there the waves were pretty high. Pretty, and they were coming up over the flight deck of the Hornet, and that was 65 feet. So uh, there were some pretty big waves. And we looked out and saw this tin can having a, having all kinds of trouble. And so it went down in a swell, and we lost track of it. So that, uh, we, <clears throat> we went back in the ready room, and... Uh, when we did, we heard that report on the squawk box that the tin can on the port side sunk. It uh, mm-hmm. went down but didn't come back. So we lost that tin can. Wow. That's incredible. Not not due to enemy fire, but due to just a really bad Mother typhoon, typhoon, Mother Nature in the, in the Pacific, yeah. uh, concurrent with World War II. Well, we are out of time, gentlemen. Uh, wanted to thank... Barrett Tillman, the author of The Tale of Eleven, uh, starts on page 34 of the current issue, the, the July-August issue of Naval History Magazine. We've got uh, Virgil Bloomquist, who is a World War II veteran and a veteran of Carrier Air Group 11, who flew in uh, TBMs. And uh, George Rotellis, the director of the documentary called Eleven, which is uh, on our website right now as a member benefit. So if you're a member of the Naval Institute, you can go uh, log in and, and uh, watch that amazing documentary about the uh, exploits of Carrier Air Group 11 during World War II. Godspeed to all three of you. And um, I hate to do math in public, but uh, Verge, it seems to me that you must be either 94 or 94, 95 years old. 94. 94. 94. Well, sir, um, as we sign off here, I want to wish you a very uh, happy Independence Day, 4th of July, and uh, thank you for all you did and your generation did for uh, this amazing country. Uh, Once again, uh, to our audience, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. 
Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com.